And I want to tell you a little bit about this prophet Zephaniah before we get into it, because he's really a very interesting guy. Um, like Habakkuk, who was unique uh, in the fact that um, we, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk, but we know that his thought processes, his, his analysis, his somber view of what was going on around him, and his lack of answers from God prompted him to open his prophecy with his very uh, direct question, God, I'm talking and you don't seem to be listening. I need some answers here. You know, Habakkuk was that guy. <laughs> and when we come to the end of his prophecy, chapter 3, Hebrew scholars say that literarily that third chapter of Habakkuk reaches the loftiest form of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry anywhere in the Old Testament as he recounts <coughs> his vision of God. Well, Zephaniah is, is also kind of out of the mainstream in many senses. Zephaniah, um, first of all, is probably a young man. Uh, I don't know what the ages of the other prophets were. We kind of get the idea sometimes that they were maybe in their 40s or 50s, uh, except for Jeremiah. He was probably pretty young when God called him. But Zephaniah was probably a young man in his early 20s. And... Uh, he tells us a lot about his pedigree as you open the book of Zephaniah in verse 1 of chapter 1. The Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Godaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, we don't have to wonder when he prophesied because he tells us very clearly it was in the days of Josiah. And as we look into this a little bit further, we gather that in the time of Josiah, it was either just before or in the period immediately following some of Josiah's um, reforms. But do you remember in the Old Testament the unique thing about Josiah the king? How old was he when he became king? Eight. He was eight years old. I mean, this is amazing. This guy's eight years old when he becomes the king of, of Israel, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And, um, of course, you do not turn an eight-year-old loose on the throne. You don't turn an eight-year-old loose almost anywhere. But, but you don't turn him loose on the throne uh, to run the kingdom. And so, when you, when you become an inheritor of a kingdom at a young age like that, of course, you have to have tutors and you have to have uh, people overseeing you. And he had... Uh, kind of a godly uncle who was high priest, kind of overseeing him and helping him out and giving him some guidance. But his ancestor was Hezekiah, the king. And we also learn that Zephaniah's ancestor was Hezekiah. And most conservative commentators on the book consider it to be King Hezekiah. That means these two guys were kind of distant cousins. So Josiah is the king, Zephaniah is the prophet, but they have the same great-great-great-grandfather, who is Hezekiah. And the other thing is, is that based on the lineage and the times, and you kind of put it all together, you find out that they were both about the same age. And when Josiah the king was 16, he began to really seek the Lord by the time he was 20, he was starting to bring some reforms into the kingdom. By the time he was 24, 25, he had um, made some significant reforms. The book of the law was found in the temple. I think it had been kind of hidden away until the right moment. And they, they found the book when they were doing some remodeling because he was repairing the temple. And, and all of a sudden, the, the reforms begin to take place in a significant way. But meanwhile, Zephaniah, who's about the same age, is preaching about the need for true spiritual awakening. And I kind of tried to dial back in my mind and see if I could put this in, uh, you know, in, I want to say in situ, but you need, <laughs> you need a different word than that. I want to put it in, in the times and the moments of when it was going on. And here's what I envision. Now, this is just conjecture. This is Paul Martin speak. There's no Bible for this, but this is my conjecture. Uh, these two guys are growing up together around the temple. And uh, they, they know each other, and they talk to each other. And, you know, 
uh, here's an eight-year-old about to become one day the real ruler, and here's a, a young man, Zephaniah, who is uh, serious and seeking God and pure of heart. Where else would you find him if he lived in Jerusalem but hanging out at the temple? I mean, he's really interested in the Lord. And my impression is that, you know, these two fellows may have had quite an influence on each other as Josiah seeks to bring reform to the nation and Zephaniah preaches about purity of heart and and single-mindedness. And this is all the kinds of things that's going on. The time of the prophecy is somewhere between 630 and 620 B.C., certainly not later than 612, because Zephaniah prophesied before the fall of Nineveh. And we learned uh, a couple weeks ago that Nineveh fell as the capital of Assyria in 612. So, the prophecy was before the fall of Nineveh because it's future to Zephaniah's prophecy. But it's only a short while before the southern kingdom finally, because God has just had it with their apostasy, finally succumbs to the Babylonians in 586. If you do the math, we're on a timeline going backwards when we're doing B.C., so 586 to 600 is 14 years, to 620 is 34 years, just one generation away from God's judgment of the southern kingdom. And Zephaniah is pouring his heart out from the Lord to the people about the things that still need to be fixed. And what we really see in the first chapter of Zephaniah is it is a mixed bag situation. There have been some reforms. There, have been, there has been some lip service kind of revival. There has been a resurgence of true worship of Jehovah, Yahweh in the temple. Those things have been happening. But the hearts of the people are still not wholly devoted to God. And the evidence of it becomes apparent when Josiah dies and passes off the scene and, and, and immediately the people are back at their old ways. So clearly it was like an external influence and pressure for them to change, but there was no stirring change of heart. The other interesting thing about Zephaniah's prophecy is when you get into chapter 2, he has a lot to say about the nations surrounding Judah, and he says it fast and right to the point. I mean, these are not three-chapter prophecies. These are like two lines, one verse, two verses. It's uh, Egypt, you're going down. Assyria, you're going down. You know, Babylon, you're in for trouble. I mean, it's just bam, bam, bam. God is going to deal with all of you. He's very abrupt in how he brings the, the message of judgment. God is fed up and he's going to deal with this whole Middle Eastern mess. But then in the midst of that, there's this constant juxtaposition of the day of the Lord with the judgment that's coming immediately. And... Um, I wish sometimes I had a whiteboard that I could do some illustrations. Not often, but every once in a while, because you need to see a picture. But sometimes the prophets look at things kind of telescopically. And those of you that like to take pictures and you're photographers, you know what a telephoto lens does. It, it compresses things. It tends to bring all the elements you know, together in a picture. And if you look prophetically down the road, and, and there's a, there's a low-lying hill here, and there's this mountain peak out here, but you're looking at it telephoto-like, you tend to see them like this, and, and you tend to talk about them because you see the, the scene compressed. And so some of the things that Zephaniah is saying is judgment is coming to Judah, judgment is coming to the nations around Judah, and that's going to happen pretty soon. But he talks about the day of the Lord in, in many situations where he means the day of the Lord. Not the one that's coming 
for Judah in 586 B.C., but the one that's coming when the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, King of kings, Lord of lords, bursts through the sky and plants His feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and comes to the rescue of Israel in the last days and brings the church with Him and, and the, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment for all the opponents of God, but it's a day of great rejoicing for those who are safe in the Lord. And Zephaniah sees that, and as we come to the third chapter, that's the the preoccupation of those final words that he has to say, is a day is coming when God will purify this land, the humble and the lowly of heart will seek the Lord, He will come to their rescue, He will bring all the nations together around Jerusalem and He will deal with their apostasy and their sin and their ungodliness and He Himself will be in the midst of His people rejoicing over them with singing. Zephaniah, who brings so much doom and gloom in the first two chapters, brings so much brightness in the final chapters. It's just glorious to see the transition. Now, I want to spend most of our time this morning actually in chapter 1 in the first 13 verses. And, you know, I, I don't know what you thought. To tell you the truth, I didn't know what I thought when I started this series on the Minor Prophets because, I, got, you know, I kind of felt like God was taking me that way and I had no idea what I was getting into. And it's like, where is this going to go? And then as I prayed about it, I thought, well, I should take one prophet per sermon. And, well, you know me, I don't have to explain how strange that is, you know, to cover chapters and chapters in one sermon. And and I kind of felt like I ought to do that. And then I was wondering, what is God going to tell me? What is He going to teach me? And one of the things that has been just amazing to me as I've gone through these minor prophets is to see the, the, the light shine on different aspects of God's character that just kind of come out of the prophecy to us. But the other thing that has been really amazing is how timely these guys are. I mean, you know, they wrote from 2,500 years ago to 3,000 years ago almost. And it's like reading the morning paper. What they have to say is so timely, so on target, because people are people everywhere. And and the times of the church in the United States of America today is so much like the times of ancient Israel as they were leading in their apostasy up to the judgment of God upon those nations. And Zephaniah is no different. These first 13 chapters, 13 verses of chapter 1, I think just hit the nail on the head for where the church is today. So I want us to dial in and focus on those. Look at verse 2. I, I'm going to read 2 through 13, and we're going to come back and talk about them. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's obviously a future time. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guest. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish them on that day, all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. And on that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. And all who weigh out silver will be cut off. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, 
The Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Let's go back to verse 4 and look at these things that Zephaniah is pointing out that God is grieved over regarding the duplicity, the double-minded nature of His people. First of all, he says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Now, here's the problem. Remember I said it was a mixed bag. These people are making an outward pretense of serving God, but there is a remnant of Baal worship hanging out. Kind of on the edges. It's on the fringe. And there is in the moment of this time, idolatrous priests who are kind of sold out to Baal. And other priests who are hanging out at the temple. But the implication of the verse is they're commingling. You know, it's like a professional club. And the idolatrous priest and the priest are all just, you know, they have a religious luncheon. And they all get together to talk shop. And, and God says, I, I am disturbed by this. And the day is going to come when I'm going to remove the last vestiges, the remnant of Baal from this place. And when I do so, I'm going to take the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, and just get rid of a whole lot of them. I'm, I'm going to deal with it. And today, you know, when I look at the church today, I see similar kinds of things happening that we need always to be on guard about. And I, I want to be careful to define ourselves clearly here that we don't end up looking like, uh, truly narrow-minded and bigoted fools. Some people do that. They, 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 they create situations that are, that are just ridiculous. And as I heard one time, they're so narrow, they squeak when they walk. I'm talking about people that define Christianity in terms of, uh, for example... Jesus and the apostles used the King James Bible, so that's the one I'm going to use. You know, that kind of mentality. We need to be careful that we don't get off in that kind of narrow-mindedness that, that we just make fools of ourselves. But by the same token, we need to be very careful that we do not fraternize and associate as if we're equals among those who deny the Scripture, who discredit the historicity of the Bible, who deny the virgin birth, who deny the resurrection, who deny the miracles, the liberal element that basically undermines the truth of Scripture as well as those elements that have Christian in their declaration, but they have a different gospel. Because the Bible is very clear that the gospel is pretty straightforward, pretty basic, pretty plain, that the way to salvation and eternal life and a relationship with God is through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His shed blood alone, plus nothing, period. And the Apostle Paul said in his writing to the Galatian church, if someone is telling you that anything else needs to be added to that simple truth, it is not the Gospel. It is another Gospel. Not a different one. It is a false Gospel. It is not the truth, and we need to separate ourselves from that. We've got to be careful today 
who, whom we fellowship with as if we were among equals and everything was okay. Because everything is not okay. And in doing that, friends, I, I, I want to... You've heard me preach enough that I think you should know this. We need to love those who are wrong. We need to offer them the hope of salvation. We need to pray for them. But we do not need to give the illusion that we are in agreement with them or can have any harmony of spirit. What fellowship has God with Belial? We cannot commingle as if we were all on the same page. We are not. And the gospel is pretty straightforward. God wants a church that's pure. And you know, when you, when you, when you look at that in, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the return of Jesus Christ for His bride. This is what He says, He will rapture a bride that is pure without spot or blemish. How's that going to happen? Well, as... One person said about the disciples, you don't die for something you believe to be a lie. All of those disciples died for their faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. There will come a day when following Christ is costly, and those who are not those who don't know the living presence of the living God just are not going to put their life on the line for it. And Jesus is going to rapture a church that's pure. It behooves us to become that people now. Secondly, he says, if you look with me in verses 5 and 6, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. This is describing, we're not talking about the priests now, we're talking about all the people. Now, in those days, and you've seen pictures, you know, if nothing else, in your Sunday school literature years ago, in those days, the roofs were flat, by and large. And, uh, you know, you had your deck up on the roof. You had your barbecue and your patio furniture, and you kind of went up on the roof. Not really, but, but, the, but the roofs were flat. And, and people did use their rooftops. And at night, they would go up on the roof. Now, these are the people who are coming to, to, to the temple on the Sabbath. And then they go up on the roof at night... And they get out under the sky and they say, let's see, I'm a Leo and Orion's in this part of the sky. Okay, so, uh, oh, Orion, why don't you tell me whether it would be a good idea to have that business meeting tomorrow? In other words, they're consulting astrology for the guidance in their lives. So they're in the temple on Saturday, and then they're on their rooftops asking the stars to tell them what to do based on the astrological calendars. Then he says, you swear and bow down to the Lord, and then you swear by Milcom. Well, Milcom is another name for Molech, and Molech was the, the god of fertility and sex. Of course, that's not anything like our country today, but, but there was this god of fertility and sex, and, and everybody kind of worshipped that. And at one time, perhaps even now, the, the Israelites, when they were really into this, would offer their children in the furnaces of Molech, their firstborn, male or female, they would offer their babies in sacrifice to Molech. Later on, the practice became that they would devote their children to temple prostitution unto Molech for a period of time. And so that became the euphemism of passing through the fire of Molech as they became temple prostitutes. Now, can you imagine a people that are saying, you know, uh, okay, we're going to worship God in the, on Saturday in the temple, we're going to get direction from the stars, and then we're going to take our kids to the, to the temple of Molech to be a prostitute for the next year. All, all this confusion 
And in the midst of it, he says, those who have sought, they have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. There's one thing this group of religious people are not doing. They're not praying. They're worshiping. Not really, but they think they are. They're going through the ritual. They're coming to temple. They're offering sacrifice. But their hearts are divided. They're looking to the stars for guidance. They're confused with the idolatry of their, of their culture and their ungodly neighbors. And in their own spirit, they are prayerless. They're not asking God for answers. They're not inquiring of Him. They're not even looking to Him. It's all lip service. Now, as I was meditating on that this week, I feel like the Lord kind of gave me some insight because I think sometimes when we read this stuff about idolatry, you know, the image that forms in our mind is kind of like, sort of like cave people that are, you know, they're dragging their clubs around or whatever, and they're bowing down to these dumb idols. They're doing, doing ridiculous stuff. And, and we think of them as being kind of stupid, um, backwater ignoramuses in our minds. And it's only because we do not understand the, the depth of sophistication of those cultures. Just because it was 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, does not mean it was like prehistoric. In fact, to be perfectly honest with you, if you understand the Scripture, there is no prehistoric because we know where Adam started and how, and everything's been history ever since. So there is no prehistoric. But anyway, we, we tend to kind of assign this, this like, oh, they're not like us. I mean, we're sophisticated. We're, you know, we wear nice clothes. We're, we drive cars. We have an advanced culture. They're stupid. No, they're not stupid. They were very advanced peoples in those days. They were very intelligent. They were very brilliant. Being smart doesn't make you good. It just makes you smart. Sometimes it makes you worse. But, but it certainly does not. We saw that in one of the other prophecies. It does not predispose to good character. Being intelligent can just simply predispose you to being very wicked in more clever ways. These are people whose architecture was astounding. These are people whose culture was very sophisticated. This is a thousand years and more after the pyramids. And that was no small feat. In fact, investigation has kind of given the implications now that people understood trigonometry and calculus and things like that long before anybody ever got the credit for inventing it because it was put together in a way that Western mind could understand. But, but the Egyptians had some astounding capacity in mathematics and architecture. And Archimedes, who was only a hundred or so years after this event, was a brilliant guy who, when his city was under siege by an invading army, he creates this lens, he makes this lens, and, and, he, and he gets some people, and they go up on top of one of the towers in the city, and they focus the sun on the ships that are kind of out in the harbor of the invading army. They're waiting, to, like, we're, we're out of firing range, you know, you can't touch us. You know, listen, space satellites and, and, and space wars, we've got nothing over, our, over Archimedes. He gets up on top with this lens, focuses the sun on the ships, and they catch fire, just like you've done with a magnifying glass and a leaf. You know, and it's like, whoa, what's happening? What kind of weapon have they got? Man, our ships are burning up. They just, poof, they just burst into blaze. So don't think of these people as being ignorant, dumb cavemen-like people. These are sophisticated, intelligent people who are, in the culture of their day, following the popular message and thread and, and falling into all of the norms that are ungodly. And so do we. So do we. I really believe with all my heart that one of the top 
ten, top five, maybe the top one sin of the church today is prayerlessness. We don't seek God. We don't ask Him. In our private lives, we don't inquire of the Lord. And yet, we turn to other gods. We turn to other gods. We're idolaters. And... In subtle ways that we may not recognize. For example, Scientific American arrived at our house this week, and uh, there was an interesting article in there. Do Americans have faith in science? Now, that was the way it was. Do they have faith in science? And what it was was evaluating the belief system of Americans. Who do they trust to give valid information about origins, history of man? And, and solutions. Who do they trust? And when you read the survey, four out of five Americans, that's 80%, four out of five Americans believed that science had the answers to the history of the universe, to the origins of man, and to solutions for life. Science has the answer. An ABC News survey in July, July 18th, I believe, was conducted in which they reported that 83% of Americans stated that they were Christian. 13% said they had no religious affiliation, they were either agnostic or atheist. And 4% claimed to be religion other than Christian, which included everybody else. 83% of Americans in this year, a few months ago, by a poll conducted by ABC News, claim to be Christians. Now, overlay those two statistics. Eighty percent of Americans say science is the reliable source of information for our, our history, our origins, and, and the solutions to our issues. Eighty-three percent say they're Christians. What does that tell you? Most Christians do not believe what God said. They believe science has the final authority in these matters. That's, there's no other way you can read that. You, you can take the 17% that didn't claim to be Christians and the 20% that said they didn't believe in science and you still have a significant overlay, overlay of those sets, probably on the order of at least 60% or more who profess to be Christians but do not accept the Bible as the solutions and answers to life's deepest questions. Tell me we're not mixed up in our thinking. Tell me the church is not mixed up. The other thing that I find interesting is the church's fraternization with psychology. And how deeply invested we get in psychology in the last 50 or more years. And as I was thinking about this false God, you know, it, it occurred to me, I, there's some things that we need to understand. Because God's complaint here is you're not talking to me, you're talking to everybody else, you're going everywhere else for answers, but you're not coming to me. Okay, what's the problem with psychology? Let me tell you what psychology is capable of first. Psychology as a discipline is capable of naming things. It can observe, it can categorize, it can, you know, a psychologist can listen to you, give you a few tests, uh, listen to your story, and say, oh, you're depressed, you have unipolar depression, which means you're just kind of down all the time. Or you have bipolar depression, which means you have these periods where you can conquer the world, followed by the crash, and then you eventually think you can conquer the world again, and then you go down again, and so you ride the roller coaster. Or they may say, well, you have um, borderline personality disorder. <clears throat> I won't go into that, but if you ever have met anyone that has it, you'll recognize them. They will make your life miserable and drive you crazy. Or you have narcissistic personality disorder. That means you really do believe that the world re revolves around you. You are the epicenter. You believe that, you know, and you're convinced. And, and so 
you've obviously got a problem because no one else thinks that's true. And so you're in conflict. <clears throat> and so psychologists can name things. And then they have this nice little book called the Diagnostics uh, Manual of Mental Disorders, um, DSM, Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. And they can look in there and, and assign a, a diagnostic classification to your problem. Now we've named it. And they're very good at that. They are very good at that. And once you've named it, you can kind of predict behavior. Okay, this is probably what you're going to do. This is how you are, so it's probably what you're going to do. And how, you know, so, so if you're broken, we want to try to fix you. Ah, here's where the rub comes. Here's what psychology cannot do. It cannot tell you how you got the problem. It cannot speak to history. There is no known cause and effect in whatever's ailing you. You say, of course there is. I, this happened in my life, that happened in my life, and that's why I am the way I am. I don't know that. You don't know that. Friends, children who grow up in the same household and experience the same trauma and have the same parents behave in totally different ways. You've heard me tell the story of the, 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 the analysis that was done of twins of alcoholic parents. So they have identical twins. Now, identical twins have the same basic genetic makeup, and they're in the same home, and, and okay, the parents are alcoholics. How do the twins turn out? And one of the most famous stories in this is two guys. One became a teetotaling, successful attorney, and the other one became a homeless alcoholic on the streets. And when they asked them the question... How did you turn out the way you did? They both gave the same answer. With parents like ours, how could I be any different? One's a homeless alcoholic. The other one's a non-drinking, successful attorney. What do you mean, how could I be any different? They had totally different reactions to the same environment. Psychology cannot tell you how you got where you are, so stop blaming everybody because you don't know if they're the cause or not. They can't tell you a thing about that. But here's the real kicker. Psychology cannot tell you what will fix you. It has no answers for a cure. It's kind of try this, try that, and hope for the best. A little medication may relieve some anxiety. A little medication may... Uh, help with depression. Ultimately, there's only one person in all the universe that knows your thoughts from afar before you even think them. There's only one person that knows the whole story of every intricate thing that's happened in your life. There's only one person that knows all the variables. And it's the same one that knows how many hairs are on your head. That person is God Almighty, His Son Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit who knows us intimately. He's the only one that can accurately diagnose us. He is the only one that can bring us out to the true solution. And the Scripture tells us that very plainly. Come to me. Seek me. When you have problems, lay them out before me. Here's the beauty of coming to God with our issues when we're wrong. He can put His finger on it and He can provide the power in the Holy Spirit for transformation. Aren't you glad for that? You're not consigned to be the same forever. He's the one that heals. He's the one that clears the mind. You know, one of the most important effective worldly methods of psychotherapy for depression is Aaron Beck's method of cognitive uh, psychotherapy, cognitive therapy for depression. And what that means is, is that the, the counselor listens to you and gets you talking about the way your mind works when you're down and and the world is a disaster, and, and your life is in the pits, and they get you talking about that so that they can hear what's going on up there. And then they take what, what they call, the metaphor they assign is the tapes that play over in your mind. They take those out on the table and say, okay, let's talk about this thought that always goes through you. 
For example, someone someone may have a thought that says, I, I, I will never amount, I'm not, I'm not very intelligent, and I'll never amount to anything, I'm going to be, you know, I'm just going to be a failure all my life. You know, well, let's get that out on the table and look at that. Every time you get down, those are the thoughts that go through your mind. Let's see, you have several graduate degrees, you're, you're, you're the head of your field, you're well-respected in the field, you're asked to lecture all the time. The facts don't fit your thoughts. Yeah, but that's how I feel. Well, well, let's get the facts out. Let's begin to replace the, the bad tapes with the truth so that we can change this trapped way of thinking. Beck's cognitive therapy has been the brightest spot in all of psychotherapy in dealing with depression. You know why? He's not a Christian, by the way. You know why? Because he discovered by accident something that we should already know. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, good. think on these things. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on things of the earth. For You've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. But the real kicker is in Romans 12, 1 and 2 when it says, And brothers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you can prove the will of God that which is good and acceptable and perfect Fill your mind with the Word of God. Believe God what He says about you. Come to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit talk to you about who you are and how much He loves you. And here's the wonderful news. You know, every once in a while, you pull out one of those bad tapes and it says, you know, I'm inconsistent, I I lack commitment, I have no follow-through, I'm disorganized. And you get that tape out on the table and you say, Oh, it's true. Oh my goodness, it's true. That one's real. That's, that's exactly what I'm like. Isn't it wonderful for God to say, I knew that. I've always known that. And I love you. I like, you don't have to prove anything to me. I love you. But now that we both know it, I'd like to make you different. I can change you by my spirit if you'll let me. I will bring self-control. I will bring... We have the answers. Why do we run to other places? We're no different from these guys back in Zephaniah's day. Another thing that's kind of interesting about them is look at um, verse 8 of chapter 1. It will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Now, we're not about to institute a dress code. But here's what I want you to understand. What's, what's the bottom line here? What's the, the simple statement here? They want to look like the world. They want to be accepted. They don't want to go out there and be so different. that, that So they've adopted the dress of all the foreign nations. They want to look like everybody else. God says to us, yes, us, yes, Christians in, in 2010, us, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Follow Me. Don't be afraid of being different. I've made you a peculiar people. Some of you are more peculiar than others, but, but I've made you a peculiar people. Come out! We're not specifically talking about a dress code here. We're talking about an attitude of life, a way of seeing that says, I want to be most like my God. Whatever that means out there. Whatever it costs me. But here are the very leaders of the kingdom... Uh, they want to look like everybody else. They don't want to be different. They don't want to stand out. And then he says, I will punish on that day those who leap on the temple threshold, fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. 
without going into too much detail, this is the very same thing that was happening in Jesus' day with the money changers. In other words, you're bringing commerce, you're bringing merchandising, you're bringing deception, you're bringing violence right into the temple. I'm glad you come to church on Saturday, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem. I'm glad you come to the temple on Saturday, but you don't act any different than anywhere else. This is not sacred to you. This is not holy. This is just another opportunity to do business and, and work your magic and practice your deception and carry on. Just like the money changers when Jesus went into the court of the temple in His day. The same way. Do we have... Do we understand the beauty and holiness of the the church. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the family. Do we respect? Do we live transparently with one another in these respects? God says, I'm, I'm pretty fed up with this carrying on that you do when you get together. But here's one that really arrested me. You know, and I, and I, think, it, I, I think it gripped me because... Sometimes when I get down and I lose sight of who God is, this is my temptation. We can, we can couch it in very subtle terms. We can even try to hide in a theology of the sovereignty of God that eliminates responsibility and activity. And we have to be careful about that because God is sovereign, but He's also active. And But here's what it is, verse 12. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Now, they didn't have flashlights, but you know what you do with a flashlight. You point it out in front of you and you look at what's in the beam. So if you have a lamp, see God. He's got the lamp and He's, he's looking. He's, he's looking through Jerusalem. He's going around searching. That's what He's doing. He's searching. And what's he looking for? He is looking for those who are stagnant in spirit. I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. And how do we diagnose stagnant? Who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good or evil. Let me put it in plain English. What does it do to pray? God's not going to judge. God's not going to bless. Life's just going to go on. Life is just life. It's just the way it is. You know, I'm prayerless because prayer doesn't work. God doesn't hear. Nothing happens. I don't have to worry about judgment. I don't have to worry about blessing. I'm just going to continue to get, pay lip service. Yes, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But I don't really think anything's going to change. I don't think God's going to get active. It's just going to be what it is. Stagnant in spirit. Isn't that sad? You don't believe God is alive and well and engaged. He is engaged. In the New Testament book of Revelation, we have the same problem. The problem is found in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. Jesus says, man, you think you've got it made. You've got fine churches. You've got great buildings. You've got wonderful clothes. You say, I'm rich. I'm, I'm successful. I've got everything I need. And he says, you don't know that you're blind and naked and destitute. And he says, not only that, You're not even appetizing. You're lukewarm. In fact, you're so sickening to me, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Ugh. Lukewarm. Lukewarm. They don't believe that God is engaged. And so they have religion, but no power, because they have no expectation. God is a God who is engaged people. And whom does he bless? You shall seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And he who comes to God must believe that he is 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Our God reigns. He is on the throne. He will hear our prayers. He will get involved. He will make changes. He will lead us and guide us and direct us. We can inquire of Him. He's there for us. Not just there for us. He's God, but He's there for us. And God says, I'm looking for the people who don't believe that because they really don't belong in the house. I want people who expect me to act. And so as we come to the end of the book, verse 8 of chapter 3, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Why? Because I am an active God. And if I'm delaying, it's only because I have a purpose and a plan, but I am going to act. I'm going to take action. And then as we come to the very end of the book, verse 14 and following, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. That's talking about the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. And I want you to just see the scene as we come to a close this morning. Here's the scene. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, has burst through the heavens. He has planted His feet in Jerusalem. All the armies of the world were arrayed against them with the intention of annihilating them. But he has come to the rescue. And with him, all the saints, all the church, we are returning with Jesus. We're now in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's party time. We're about to have a feast. And Jesus in the midst, the King, the Lord in the midst, verse 17, is in your midst a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will rest in His love. He will renew in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The New International Version says, with singing, see Jesus, King Jesus, dancing and singing in the streets. The glorious bride and the great Son of Man. See Him rejoicing in the midst of the church and the remnant of Israel. See Him establishing His kingdom. It's time for a wedding feast. We are together with Him forever. Wait for the Lord. Friends, don't compromise. Don't pollute yourselves. Don't get mixed up in this world system. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Father, I pray this morning that You would... Purify our hearts and our minds. Give us a single-minded devotion to You. May we not be deceived by the false gods all around us. May we seek You with all of our hearts because You have the answers. Not only for the world, but for us personally. You have the answers. And we can trust You in every aspect of our lives to lead us faithfully if we put you first on the throne of our heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.